Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, your host, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. Welcome back to another episode. It's so great to have all of you back. I hope things are blooming and as beautiful for you as they are here in my northern Michigan office. We have long days. The veggies and flowers are poking through the soil. It almost makes our six months of winter worth it. Thank you for being here again. Our team is still plotting out our fourth, that's right, our fourth cohort of fellows, and we will soon be making announcements on that front. Worth mentioning that you can stay in touch and on top of all Agents of Change happenings by following us at Agents of Change and Environmental Justice on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. All right, today's guest is Brenda Trejo-Rosas, a PhD candidate in the Environmental and Occupational Health Department at George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health. Brenda was also part of our first cohort, and you may remember her essay, Health Research and Its Problem with the R-Word, which you can find at ehn.org. Brenda talks about how her upbringing instilled in her a passion for environmental health, the problematic framing of modern environmentalism, and how to move public health research beyond reducing race to a mere data point. Enjoy. All right. I am super happy to be joined by Brenda Trejo-Rosas. Brenda, how are you? I'm doing well. It's so um, good to be here and see you, Brian. So I wanted to start. So as I said, I had the fortune, uh, good fortune to work with you with our first cohort. And uh, your essay was one of my, ended up being one of my favorites from that cohort. And um, that's like picking a child, I guess. But it, I, it really, it was just a really nice piece. And I wanted to start there because it talked, you, you spoke briefly about some of your upbringing and I wanted to quote it. So in the essay, you wrote, an abundance of family practices connected me to others in the environment. As a young child, my great uncle would solicit my help to shell corn cobs for tortilla nixtamal. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Passing on the cultural... Ne- ecological knowledge of Mesoamerica. My parents built a well to collect rainwater for homies, connecting me to vital elements. So I I really like this painting a picture of kind of early uh, connections to the environment, to people, to family. So from that starting point, can you talk about this upbringing and how it shaped your decisions to pursue a career examining health and the environment? We are farm workers um, and we come from this small town and I think I mentioned it in the blog, it's called Simapan Hidalgo um, in Mexico. And that city is like historically a mining town. And if you want to understand the history of the town too, like um, it was colonized by Spain. And so um, there's still a lot of like indigenous people there. And so we have a lot of those indigenous practices moving from that yeah there's a lot of like things um recognizing you know my grandparents and um, my parents and my great-grandparents spoke their indigenous language i had a nickname in 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 their indigenous language and i just they just did things differently um and we had land um or the family had land and like farms and animals um but that changed drastically too because um, of 
droughts, you know, there was less water as the decades went by. And so that influenced like my family to come to the States. And another thing you mentioned the essay was uh, how environmentalism was framed as you got older, you know, getting past some of your childhood and some of these experiences with, you know, questionable folks like John Muir, who has kind of a racist past or, you know, just just seeing it all be uh, expensive outdoor gear and, and white people out hiking, you know, as the kind of mm -hmm. model of environmentalism. So can you talk about how, how this was at odds with your experience and maybe some of the environmentalists that you do look up to and drive your work? Um, yeah, I think that was super at odds with my experience because um, like just with my family, we spend a lot of time um, outside. You know, it doesn't have to be outdoors. We just call it outside like going to college, uh, undergrad, like a lot of people taking these hikes, but you know, you had to like have all this fancy gear and shoes and uh, I didn't really understand that. And I was like, oh, is this a barrier to go to this hike out here? Um, and then it, it, I learned like, it doesn't have to be like that. You know, you can have very simple things um, to go out there. Yeah, some of the equipment is helpful, you know, but it's not necessary. And I think in my, I I appreciate my department and I learned so much from it. Um, but I think there wasn't an emphasis of other environmentalists outside of American environmentalism, except they would call it Southern environmentalism. Yeah, they included, I think like even the Chipko movement in India I think the environmentalists that I look up to are, first and foremost, my family. So I've been asking all of the fellows, what is a defining moment or event that shaped your identity? So this could be personal, professional, just something that stands out in your mind that was a light bulb moment, moment of uh, helping to kind of shape who you are. There's many, of course. Um, one that comes to mind right now is... Um, is more of a relationship. Um, and that relationship was my, with my English teacher um, slash literature teacher in high school. I'm used to calling everybody professor. She wasn't a professor, <laughs> <laughs> my high school teacher, uh, Miss Courtney Morgan. She's amazing. Um, this was in Idaho Falls, Idaho, Skyline High School. Shout out to them. Shout out to, um, she was also the, advisor of our newspaper, the West Side Story. Um, and she was amazing. Actually, I met her through my older sister. Um, when she was in high school and I was in junior high, she would stay late for late nights. And so I'd had to walk over there and be like, come on, let's go home. And that's how I met Miss Warrior. And she's like, oh, who's this young person? And maybe that's when she started recruiting me into the newspaper. Um, but she was amazing. She and she agreed with this. Unfortunately, Miss Morgan passed away um, in early 2020. Um, now that I reflect on it, she had a great impact in my life that I didn't even realize she was having at the time. And she did this to so many of us, you know. Um, I think she, one of the things is like she saw us, so she heard us, she saw us, and she gave us opportunities. and. She let us like develop our voices um, by giving us the newspaper. So what I did in the newspaper was um, 
I was the Spanish page editor. And at that time, we were the only high school um, newspaper with the Spanish page. And so we would do it bilingual, you know? So that was really cool because I didn't have any other space to be myself, you know? Yeah, what a what a touching relationship. It's amazing how much of an influence a good teacher can have. And they're just such underappreciated pillars of society. So thanks so much for sharing that. And so now speaking of where you're at today, so you're focusing on, you're a PhD candidate looking at disparities in environmental and occupational health. So tell me a little bit about, uh, we're going to dig into some of the the research that you've been involved in lately, but just kind of give us what your focus is on and why this field. Okay. Yeah. I think um, definitely folks should read my um, paper that I wrote for the agents of change. Cause I think that'll delve into it in terms of like, why did I decide to go into this field? And it has to do with um, learning about a toxic waste dump being built in Simapan Hidalgo, Mexico, where my family is from. And it was built without the consent of the community. They um, faced repression for it. And um, we didn't want that in the community. Um, and so I wanted to learn, you know, like how can people hear our voices? Um, and then uh, I reached out to the folks um, engaged in the movement and I was like, hey, I'm out in Idaho. How can I help you all from here? They're like, well, Brenda, you can start by figuring out how the US deals with their toxic waste um, because I don't think what's being done here is the way that they would do it there you know can you find out what regulations they have um and at that point i was like 18 years old in undergrad i had no idea you know i didn't know where to look or anything and so that's why i started exploring like environmental studies trying to learn as much as i could um and i was reflecting on that and actually today i could i could probably figure out where to look who to ask, I have mentors, and I could also be like, you know what, actually in the US, um, they do violate um, people's, we actually don't, we don't have a right to um, a clean, safe environment. So I would say they would violate that, but we don't have that right um, legally, you know? Um, So, so yeah, that's why I went into it. And so, yeah, I am proud of myself and the relationships um, that have gotten me to here. Um, that leads me nicely into the next question, which, so you were recently a senior author on a paper called Pervasive Structural Racism in Environmental Epidemiology, which kind of speaks to this body of literature that you were just mentioning. So you're you're now part of that, of course. And you, and you wrote, um, one of the lines was, uh, health research reduces race to a mere data point and avoids the social dimensions of health and thus fails to improve population health for all. So I think that that one line summed up a lot of the paper uh, for, for my small brain, uh, the non-scientist brain, and I really liked it. So can you talk about this issue and maybe some of the solutions that you and your co-authors put forward to not have this be ignored and not have this be the case in health research? This article also came out of, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic and she giving me space in her lab to um, voice what I was feeling and like, no, we can't keep this going and stuff. And so um, this paper comes out of that um, and and the lab and everybody, they're amazing. Um, So, 
yeah, the, I like that sentence. It talks about, um, you know, it's something I remember actually asking one of my professors in a data analysis class, um, you know, like, I don't understand. We're using race as a categorical variable, but race is a social construct. So what does this tell us? You know, like, is there something biological? I don't understand. Why are we using it like this? And um, she, I don't remember like what they answered, um, but I wasn't content with the answer. Um, and I think it continues. Also, you can look at a lot of literature in environmental health where white is the the norm, the default, you know, even if you look at race as a categorical variable, um, you have all these different races slash ethnicities also, um, and there can be a mix of them, um, but one that you're definitely sure to find in that mix is white, <laughs> and other, other ones can actually be non-white, you know, so like, okay, What's, what is the default here, you know? Um, but rarely, um, actually, yeah, very rarely, um, you'll have people explain, actually, I, I can't think of a, of a public health journal, but that doesn't matter because I don't know everything, right? Um, but most of them don't tell you how they're using race, you know? It's like, oh, we measured race. Okay, and so I'm like, okay, so, all right, you're measuring it, but what's it a proxy for? What is it a proxy for? What are you? What does it tell you? Um, and that was never answered um, in my classes. So, if we're going to use it, um, and we do see um, disparities, you know, differences um, when you're looking at things through like different races. Um, but that's not the whole story, you know, and it's like super simple simplified and unfortunately because of the history of the U.S. Um, and a lot of medical history too people don't understand it either that are using it but most of the time they think there's biological reasons you know that oh because you're this race um, you're going to have worse health outcomes and stuff like that but it doesn't work like that it's um, race Sism is very real. Um, it's a system. It doesn't have to be like individual. There's a structural system that, um, you know, shapes the reality of many people um, in this country specifically, and I'm pretty sure around the world. Um, and that impacts your health. To me, it's very, it's kind of like, it's just walking, right? Because it's part of my my life and my experience and my community's experience, you know? Um, and now I'm in the position where I'm trying to get other folks to explain it, to understand it. Um, I think it can make people uncomfortable. What I see is people, um, many people, not all people, of course, um, are not comfortable with being wrong, you know? Um, like wrong is like, the worst thing you could be, you know, and wrong means that you're learning, you know, and wrong doesn't define your character. Um, 
and you can change after that you know like we should always be learning and changing our culture is always doing that you know the planet is always doing that um so i think there needs to be like more humility and accountability and more acceptance of the learning process you know we're not always going to be right and so okay we're doing it this way let's be accountable know that that has had an impact and let's move forward but genuinely move forward to change um how we address with how we address racism in the field and other systems um of oppression yeah and that's true for research it's true for journalism you get you get people um that have part what you said is true on the individual level just people not wanting to be wrong not wanting to change but it's also true on a systems level where uh you know, the way I think of media a lot, the way media has operated for decades, uh, which is how they operated. And we know how to do this. We get, well, you worked at a newspaper, you know, the structure, <laughs> but you know, now people are saying, well, Hey, maybe that's not enough. You know, now we're in this age of, of where facts don't matter and post-truth and all that. So journalism needs to change. We need to adapt mm. and research the same thing. You did the same, not you, but the broader you, the field did the same thing for so many decades of, this is how we research. These are the data points we look at. We spit out a study. We get a grant. We get tenure. We go on with our lives. And um, so to change that is difficult. But, you know, I know folks like you are, are pushing the change and changing a system, obviously, is uh, is a challenge. What yeah, um, happened, though, and I think it reminds me of so one of my majors in undergrad was cultural anthropology. And so um, in the courses that I took, you know, we had to learn the history about the field. And they had what they called um, armchair anthropologists, where they literally sat on what they describe as the veranda, um, like anthropologists then, and watched the other people. So there was separation <laughs> between people and other, you know, and I know people use like armchair epidemiologists or something, but I don't know if they're aware that that was used because, um, I don't know. But it was used in anthropology to describe those anthropologists. And so the anthropologists had to sit down, you know, they came up as a field, you know, they came up with um, new methods that they use. And I think some of those um, methods could be very useful in epidemiology. Um, for example, understanding your positionality and self-reflexivity, you know, like you're not just a researcher um, that is researching like who you are, um, how systems of power and oppression influence you and how people engage with you is going to inform your research, you know? And so anthropologists have the practice of, you know, right at the beginning, you know, like it's kind of like a, what do they call it? Disclaimer. I don't know what they do it in public health where conflict of interest, you know, it's kind of their version of conflict of interest. Our version is weak, I think. Um, where they talk about like, this is who I am, these are my identities, and that's how that could have influenced my relationships with participants um, or studying this, you know, but it's, it's like a strength and a weakness, you know, and so you just put it forward. Um, so I think knowing about that history, about how a whole field could change, you know, um, gives me hope that public health and environmental health, environmental epi can change as well. 
Excellent. Yeah, I totally agree. It's not, and I'm glad to hear a little bit of optimism because it does seem like there are some cracks in the foundation and maybe it's just the people I'm speaking to and around, but uh, <laughs> it seems like there's people trying to shake the system for the better. And and this study was not the only thing that I saw you've worked on recently. You were part of, speaking of COVID, you were part of a COVID-19 healthcare worker survey. I mean, we've all seen what's gone on with healthcare workers the last few years. I know I have m- multiple healthcare workers in my family and my uh, my partner's family. And uh, what they've gone through the last few years is um, nothing short of traumatic uh, yeah. in, in just about every case. So tell me about the survey. What did you ask? What did you find out? I, I, I too have a connection with healthcare workers. You know, my sisters are in healthcare. They live in different states. And um, I just... I think with the beginning of the pandemic, um, you know, um, my mentors in environmental and occupational health have trained me well to understand um, what PPE is, personal protective equipment, and um, the hierarchy of controls, you know, um, of what interventions can be used in a certain context, you know, and seeing that healthcare workers didn't have this PPE to protect them um, just frightened me, you know, and I wanted my sisters and other healthcare workers and other family members to be safe um, in there they they weren't i was hearing all these stories about um how some employers didn't believe in covid-19 or retaliated because they wanted to advocate for themselves and use ppe and it was different all over the map actually you know um because there wasn't a federal response um so i know like one of my sisters is in a state where they from the get-go, we're protecting their healthcare workers the best that they could, you know, including providing PPE and um, using telemedicine if that was uh, if that was um, feasible. Um, and then another sister that was not the case, you know, and she didn't learn about some opportunities until later. Um, so yeah. And then I was like, okay, well, we need to find out. I talked to Dr. David and Michaels and I'm like, hey, I'm very concerned about this, about healthcare workers. And um, how can we find out, you know, how many of them are getting COVID-19 and all these things. And so he um, suggested places that I should look. Um, and they were reporting like COVID-19 um, cases and none of them there were actually some state departments early on into in the pandemic that um, um, health departments that were reporting by occupation and reporting healthcare workers. Of course, these were like um, underreported, but some of them had, others didn't, you know? And so I think from the beginning and from like my training that I have in public health, I'm like, oh, it would be important and useful to do this. Um, but it wasn't being done and the stories of healthcare workers weren't being told. Um, and there wasn't a place I could go to that was reporting on, you know, are they getting PPE? Um, are 
they being trained on how to use PPE? What are they being told in terms of like COVID-19? Um, what do they think, you know? Um, what is their experience? Um, and so um, with Dr. David Michaels, um, we and other, other folks um, at GW and, and other folks that Dr. Michaels knows like that works with workers, um, healthcare workers, um, I, I think some are unions also, so they represent the voice of these workers. Um, we came up with this survey um, and it's completely anonymous. Um, and what we found, I don't have the report in front of me, but um, we can share the report later. But um, in general, there were, there was, I think for me, one of the most powerful um, results from the study was the voices of the healthcare workers, because there was a space where we asked them, you know, um, to share about their experience, and um, they did, you know, they, and <clears throat> even going through their responses can be traumatic, you know, in terms of um, them being made fun of, being retaliated against, for advocating for themselves, um, not having a space to share what's going on. I know there were some um, healthcare workers of color who mentioned that um, healthcare workers of color were less likely to have um, PPE. Um, and then also there was a hierarchy in terms of like, um, maybe doctors would have more access to PPE than other folks who um, work in, in the healthcare setting, like um, folks that I, I'm not, I'm not a person that works in the healthcare setting, so I don't remember the name, but they like, I think they're transporters, they transport the patients, um, they would be less likely to have PPE, um, or, you know, some folks with um, medical degrees wouldn't see the patients and would have nurses see the patients instead. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of things that um, don't seem right and seem influenced by, <clears throat> by power, you know, who has power in this context and how are they using that power? Um, right. Now there were employers and you know other people who do have power who <clears throat> may have power power through higher <clears throat> educational obtainment who did advocate for their workers you know and so some of the healthcare workers shared that um as well so we did come out with a report um i encourage people to look at it um and it's on <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> it's so unfortunate that um, it's still the case. We're, we're still not listening to healthcare workers. Yeah. Before I get to my last question, uh, my, my second to last one is you, you talked about this a little bit, um, before about some of the ways you're optimistic about the field, you know, some directions we can go. And I was wondering if you could just expand about that. What are you optimistic about when you think about the field of environmental health and justice? What are some what are some things you're seeing, people you're watching? Um, what are some of the things that, that give you hope? 
Brian, I think um, the agents of change in environmental justice program for sure. I think that is um, a rock for my hope right now in the field in terms of learning about uh, the work that other um, scientists are doing to address environmental injustice um, in our world. Um, so yeah, I think that's super important and it gives me hope. It makes me feel less alone and it helps me see that there's a lot of relationships that might not be highlighted elsewhere and research um, of folks that are doing numerous of things um, to make the field um, and address environmental injustice, make the field better and address environmental injustice. Um, so yeah, I think that's definitely one. Um, the other is, um, through through social media and following some of these folks, I learn about other people too, you know, and and their research. And so that gives me a lot of hope. Like I think about Dr. Um, I think it Sean, I may pronounce it wrong. Oh, I'm so bad. But Dr. Chandra Jackson, um, and she studies um health inequities in the environment, and she came to GW, where I'm a candidate, um, and talked about um, sleep disparities and how the environment impacts sleep. And she did like a whole history and she used, you know, um, terms that she used racism, you know, she used um, systems of power and privilege to explain what's going on, to contextualize how that's impacting um sleep disparities um in and so she to me she's a power uh, a powerhouse you know it's super confident knows what she's talking about and explains it and um i envision moving forward that um folks will be using the terminology that she's using and doing research the way that she's doing research to address um environmental injustice yeah great well thanks so much for that answer I, I i promise listeners that we do not ask i do not ask that question so people say agents of change but it is really an honor that you do mention it and you know for me too it is it is a source of optimism for me too who, who i've covered science as a journalist for more than a decade and just seeing the breadth of people out there um, who are doing science outside of the same people you see in the media being quoted all the time um is a source of optimism. And uh, I, I totally agree. So Brenda, we've reached the end and I've been asking everybody this question. What is the last book that you read for fun? There's two. <clears throat> There's two. All right. One is um, called Trejo. So it's by Danny Trejo. I don't know if you're familiar with Danny Trejo. Yeah. Everybody's familiar with him if they know <laughs> it or not. <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. And so, um, his book is really awesome too. You know, it talks about um, trials and tribulations in his life and how he has used that to make change um, and to um, help other people, you know, and he focuses a lot on relationships and nourishing those relationships. And um, yeah, it's just an amazing um, book. I actually listened to the audiobook and it's read by him. So <laughs> it's really cool to have it, to be listening to um, Danny Trejo. Um, narrate his book. 
Um, and then the other one that I just finished, also an audiobook. I'm very into audiobooks because I like to listen and move around. Um, is what's it called? It's um, I think it's White Tears and Brown Scars: How White Feminism Betrays um, Women of Color. Um, and so, yeah, that one is a really good book too. Um, it can be heavy, but it, for me, I found it very um, validating about my experiences as a woman of color um, and hearing about, you know, why some of the things that we experience um, happen, you know, historically. Um, and so it just really opened up my eyes about these things. And I think um, for anything to improve, we have to bring to light some things that aren't working. And so I think that book helps bring that to light, you know, um, and yeah, so I, I hope that's a hopeful note, Brian. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. You know, I was listening to a podcast, I want to say it was over last summer, last summer I was listening and uh, Danny Trejo was on talking about his book. And for those who don't know, if you just do a quick search of Danny Trejo, you will know who he is because you've seen him in a zillion movies, often playing a bad guy. Um, but uh, I really want to check that out. Those Both of those books sound really great. And I appreciate you sharing those. So Brenda, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Brian, for listening to my voice, you know, and making some space for it. It means a lot. Thank you. That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brenda. If you enjoyed this podcast, you know what to do. Visit agentsofchangeinej.org, and while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team, Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Mod, and the newest addition to our team, assistant editor Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is Now Sun by Poddington Bear. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly newsletter at the program homepage. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Dr. Jennifer Roberts, an associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Maryland School of Public Health. Have a great week, folks.